So Holy Trinity's been going now for seven years, and if you've been around, you know that we don't bang on puritanically about human sexuality, but our last two scriptures in uh, 1 Corinthians, this last two paragraphs we've read together, require that we um, have an honest moment to talk together about human sexuality. So my goal this morning, obviously, in a brief sermon cannot be a comprehensive treatment. I'm quite sure I'll leave many questions unanswered. And I'm also quite sure that all of us will not agree with everything that I have to say. So while I can't claim, obviously, infallibility, I can claim sincerity. And I can claim a great love for any person, um, no matter what they might be dealing with in their human sexuality. So I think the first thing to say here, at least in the North American, Western, you know, world conversation that's going on here, because it's getting, you know, quite intense, as you know, on each side. The first thing to say is somebody here is not only wrong, but somebody here is seriously wrong. I mean, literally on the level of like cosmology, literally on the level of is the earth flat or round? That's how big a deal this is, in my opinion. I mean, either there is a way that things are that are sort of natural and normal in those sorts of terms, and this is the way God intended it to be, or as the church was wrong on cosmology, she could be wrong on human sexuality. But if we are, it's on that level. This is not a little intramural dispute. It is a really big deal. And I know it's in all of our faces through popular culture, but just go try to find a a place to have a peaceful, intelligent conversation about this. Almost impossible. It immediately just turns to yelling and mutual condemnation and a kind of mutual bigotry. So it's like whoever can shout the loudest bigoted language sort of wins in that moment. And I just wanna say, I don't think that's gonna get us anywhere. Secondly, as I started thinking about this, um, I think the church has to own its part in this. And I'm old enough to remember the church's initial reaction to the AIDS crisis, and it was not pretty. And that one thing alone got us a reputation in the GBLT community that I wanna say I don't think we've ever recovered from. Even though it's a couple decades old now, three decades, I lose track of time, um, I think we're still recovering from that. And our reaction to the GBLT community, the, everybody knows the hypocrisy of the church's own sexual sin. I mean, everybody knows that all over Orange County this morning are churches full of people who are committing sex outside of marriage and looking at pornography and engaging in casual divorce. And so the, the part of our culture that's identified as sexually broken looks at us and go, well, I don't really get it. How come you're the good guys? And we're the bad guys, because it appears to me that there's a lot of sexual brokenness both inside the walls of the church and outside it. So I think the Pope is on to something when in the last few months he's been encouraging the church to stop obsessing about sex and to realize that there are other huge issues for us to focus on where we can be the body of Christ in economic and racial and healthcare issues, in war and in education, just to name a few. This is what the Pope is saying. The Pope is not backing off on, uh, for instance, John Paul's theology of the body or that sort of thing. I think the Pope would be right in tune with that. 
He's just simply saying this conversation has gotten broken. Maybe there's some other things that we can do to be God's people on the earth. And then I would just say, as we do that, that to trust the Lord of the universe, that he has unfolding morality in his hands. You know, that little song from Sunday school, he's got the whole world in his hands. Well, that includes our present broken conversation. And he's got me and you in his hands, who all of us are wrong about something, right? I mean, I don't know if you would say that, I would. I would say I'm sure I'm wrong about something. And so God even has our wrongness in his hands and it'll work out. So last thing by way of introduction, just to help you relax a bit, take a deep breath. Um, that that as, as far as I have influence over this church, we will always do our best to know and follow the will of God. That's the first thing. That, that's our first and highest priority. But secondly, right alongside of it, I want to assure you that no one you know and no one you love will ever be rejected or pigeonholed by me or this church. Rather, we will care for and walk alongside towards ever-increasing Christ-likeness, whoever wants to walk with us. All right, with that, let's look at the text. So we have these words that we just can't avoid. Last week in chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, Paul listed the types of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And amongst them, he lists the sexually immoral, the idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, slanders, and swindlers. So this phrase, will not inherit the kingdom of God, is obviously a powerful phrase and something I think we need to look at for a minute. First of all, this is not Paul issuing a threat. And this is not like a TV commercial where he's appealing to a kind of cost-benefit analysis. And it's not meant to be a list of sort of rules that are arbitrarily imposed on, on the world. What Paul is saying is something like those who are um, committed to living as swindlers, those who are committed to living in greed, those are, who are committed to their slander as a way to deal with life, or the sexually broken, they don't fit in the kingdom of God because you can't be committed to swindling and be committed to the good of others. And so we just have to say that, again, somebody can come to the conclusion that Paul's wrong, somebody can legitimately come to the conclusion that the Bible's wrong, but you can't come to the con a conclusion other than amongst the list of ways that human beings can go wrong, that includes human sexuality. We, we can't just on a biblical basis, set that out. Now, as we heard in the reading from Corinthians this morning, Paul's context was a context of equally, if not more, broken human society over sexuality than our own. And two of the pop slogans, right? We have pop slogans, right? I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. I kissed a girl and I liked it, right? We have our own pop slogans. Well, in Paul's day, the pop slogans were, everything is permissible for me, number one. And number two, this is what it was made for. And what the, what the way the thinking went that as the stomach is made for food, the body is for sex, and sex in any way I want it. And Paul just lists a couple of examples here, homosexuality and prostitution. Those are, Paul's not being exhaustive. He's just like listing. He's trying to help people see a mental list of these were the things you were, but now you've been washed and put into the purposes of God. 
So the core to Paul's argument, if you look at verse 15 in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself, Christ who's the head of the body? And so what Paul's thinking is something like this. You are jo- you're joined with Jesus in the God project. That's what your body's for. So, so the key to Paul's argument there towards the end is we're not our own. We're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And so what Paul wants them to see is that as human beings, they are the functional equivalent of a temple. You're, you're the holy place for the presence of God and wants them to know that you're gonna have new raised bodies to live with God forever and ever. Therefore, in Christian theology, the body is hugely important. It's just that it's not meant, Paul says, for sexual immorality, but it's given to us. Please look at me. Your body is given to you as the capacity to do good. That's why you've been given a body, so that you can not just feel good or even intend good, but you can actually do good. So your body is God's given capacity for you to serve God's purposes and others. So what Paul wants the Corinthians to do is like switch their imagination so that they would say something like this. The only thing that gives me orders, the only thing that defines my life in this present age is the plan and purposes of God for humanity. Not my desires, not my appetites, not my habits of mind or my current culture. Now, something has to be said here that's really important. And this is a part of what's gone wrong in the reading of scriptures, both in the church and certainly in the world. The morals of the New Testament cannot make and will not make sense to anybody who is not committed to two things, a life of self-denial and utter confidence in God. The New Testament assumes that as a basic. Like, nobody can read the New Testament profitably if what they're trying to do is live in self-actualization. It can't be done. And if you don't have utter confidence in God, no one will read the New Testament profitably. So it, it sort of assumes that that's the position of someone's heart. That's the only way we can come to something like this. Thus, what I feel in my body cannot always mean this is what I ought to do in order to keep it real, as we say or to be an honest human being. All of us, no matter what our orientation, have to make choices about our sexual tendencies. And that even the most sexually liberal have boundaries. I mean, if God gave me a magic wand and I could just do something on the earth, I would just say, stop the hating. Just stop it. It's not getting us anywhere. Political parties hating each other, aspects of the church hating each other, gays hating what they see to be fundamental Christians, fundamental Christians saying God hates fags, go to hell. It's not getting us anywhere and it will not get us anywhere. We have to just stop the hating. And and it doesn't do any good to say, well, I hate the right thing. It's just increasingly leading to human brokenness and the inability for the church to have any sort of conversation with the broken world. So the biblical ideal then is something like this. It's the notion of covenant responsibility. And see how that shifts the whole thing? We, since certainly the French Revolution, and let's say more modernly since the 60s or something, we have been completely obsessed with my rights, my sexual rights. 
When was the last time you heard a soundbite anywhere in our culture about sexual responsibility? And how me being true to myself is never a private matter, but always impacts my community, always. So the biblical ideal is to ask questions like, why am I alive? How do I best honor God and his purposes with my gendered and sexual self? My mental self, my emotional self, but also my gendered and sexual self. How do I best honor God and his purposes in that way? And Paul wants to say to his culture and situation, what I think obviously mirrors ours is he says, well, kind of core to this is flee sexual immorality, which raises the question, how? Then we turn to our gospel reading and the genius of Jesus who begun the, you know, know, spiritual formation has become, I know, a big buzzword in the Christian community and stuff, but it was not started by, I don't know, Henry Nouwen or uh, Dallas Willard or, you know, any seminary. It's Jesus who said, it's, look at your text, it's from within, from out of the heart of humanity that come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slight prander. It's from within. And so this is one of those moments where it's helpful to just stop and say, do you think Jesus is smart? I mean, that is basic to this. If you do not ascribe to Jesus just sort of a basic intelligence that he knows what he's talking about here, that these things come from within. And so what we're invited to here is something like, well, you think of Paul's lists of bad things that people do. Think of Jesus's list here. And then, well, if you think Jesus is smart, well, then trust and follow Jesus. And look at me. Follow him racially. Follow him economically. Follow him the best you can as a gendered person. And follow him best you can given your present sexual attractions. What we're invited to here is to sincerely do our best from our heart out. God does not expect any more from his broken creation than that. And can I just tell you, it would delight God's heart this morning for him to know that you care about what he thinks. That alone is a lovely first step. God, I care about what you think. And I want to move in that direction. So now I want to shift gears a bit here and give us a way to think about doing this together as the church. And the first thing to say here, and we can prepare the slide in a moment, is that the the biblical vision for doing this together as the church, that is to say, walking together towards Christ, given our sexual brokenness, is the unity of persons in community. And all these persons are in the process of sanctification, which includes both behaviors and opinions. So we're all in this process of being made holy in not only our behaviors, but our opinions. Well, now I want to give you an imagination for this, and you can put up the first slide. This comes from what's known as social set theory. And social set theory uh, is just meant to describe how it is that people's things, churches, uh, clubs, whatever, how they relate to the uh, environment around them. So what you have up there, first of all, is um, a picture. Oh, I'm sorry, bounded set. Thank you. Thank you very much. So in what's known as bounded set theory, 
the whole focus is on the boundary because the boundary plays a very important part in how this organization exists with the rest of the world. And the function of the boundary is to tell us who's in and who's out. And that's always the question in bounded set thinking. Are you in or are you out? And you don't have to be a genius church historian to know that this is often how the church is, has engaged with the world around it. And, and of course, the markers of that boundary change from generation to generation. So um, I think I said a week or so ago, do you realize that during the Civil War, uh, I forget the number now, hundreds of thousands, maybe a million Bibles were given out on each side of that Civil War to show that the Bible supported their position on slavery, either for or against. So it changes from generation to generation, but that's what the boundary does. And then this next slide, this is what's known as centered set. And the chief characteristic of the centered set is the direction that one is moving and allowing people to come to Jesus from any distance and from any direction. So that holiness then is seen as both a summons and a journey towards that core who is Christ. And that we're all on this journey, starting from different locations around this, so that the question in, in centered set theory, with the focus no longer being on the boundary but on the center, the question becomes, which way are you heading? And this alerts us that we can, you can leave that up. This leaves a, alerts us that we can uh, walk with anyone who shares the center. We already walk, again, all over Orange County this morning, the church is already walking with the casually divorced and remarried, gamblers, drug addicts, alcoholics, those engaging in sex out of marriage. We're walking with them already. We can do it. We can do this. This is what the church does. We walk with broken people coming from any direction as long as they want to walk towards Jesus. Once they make the decision that they've seen Jesus and don't like it, well, then it makes it impossible for us to walk with them. Not that we hate them. I've already said, stop the hating. It just means, look at me, if I'm walking towards Jesus and someone's walking away, well, then I can't walk with them. It doesn't mean I hate them. It doesn't mean I wouldn't walk with them. It just means I can't. Or I think of, for me, a classic example is a young scholar I know named Dr. Wesley Hill. He's an Anglican professor of biblical studies, uh, wrote a book called Washed and Waiting, in which he came out and talked about his lifelong same-sex attraction. And for Wesley, he starts with the Bible and theology, and then he interprets his feelings since he was an adolescent, since puberty. He interprets his SSA through Bible and theology. And he tells his story in this book how he tried everything he knew to change through various aspects of spiritual growth. He studied every angle of the topic. He's a scholar. He committed himself to the biblical worldview of prohibition, which led him then to choose a life of celibacy. With all of its profound isolation and loneliness and guilt and shame, and to his great courage, he chose to do so within a flawed community of the church who often didn't know what the heck to do with him. But Wesley refuses to make gay his self-identity. His self-identity is as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. And he refuses to consider himself as simply someone with needs that must be met. Because Wesley's smart enough to know that once a human being makes that move, it collapses quickly into narcissism of my rights, my life, my liberty, my pursuit of happiness. Wesley knows 
And I would say of him, have, having been around him uh, on several occasions, and, and in fact, he, was, he gave the Bible readings for a week at one of our bishops' meetings. And I just want to say of Wesley and his teaching that they ring true with the authentic insight, power, and love of God. And that Wesley is a classic example of someone learning to live with his struggle well within a Christian community. And I would want to say this is best imagined in this center set sort of way because it's so clear that Wesley is pursuing God with all of his heart. Well, my friend Scott McKnight a year or so ago wrote a book called A Fellowship of Difference, D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-T-S, A Fellowship of Different People. And I want to give you here now some values for living into this sort of centered set uh, living, uh, some of which come from Scott. Scott wrote in this book, we're called to accept and love everyone unconditionally, regardless of who they are or what they believe or do. But acceptance is not agreement with or endorsement of identity and orientation or beliefs and behavior or character or lifestyle. These things are always challenged by the gospel as we follow Jesus. Now, I think this is one of the most important thoughts for this morning. So let's see if you can get this. That repentance from sin and healing from brokenness and moral transformation, they are givens as much as unconditional love and acceptance is. But see, in our world today, the accent is almost always on unconditional love and acceptance, and we've lost any accent on repenting from sin or finding healing from our various brokennesses or moral transformation. And then I want to say that I think this mutual journey of heading towards the sinner who is, who is Christ is facilitated best by the other New Testament ethics. Like think of, we'll get to 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's famous chapter on love. This whole dynamic, I would say, can only happen in that sort of love or the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. So imagine this happening in an environment of love and patience and kindness and generosity and compassion and self-restraint and trust and forgiveness. Well, the third imaginative thing I'd want to say is that Jesus seemed to welcome, embrace, and delight in the opportunity for messy people to be healed and to become holy. I mean, James and John were completely wrong about Jesus in important areas. Peter, do I have to say more? Judas, Jesus actually seemed to delight in helping people, no matter what direction they were coming from, to come to him. And so in the church, I would want to say that we're on a centered set journey towards full redemption, including the redemption of the body and sexuality. And that there's every reason, and this I think is Scott, there is every reason to think that Paul would welcome everyone who wanted to eat at the table and enter to communion with Christ as long as one was on the journey towards sexual redemption. Paul was encouraging. I mean, I don't have time to talk about the brokenness in Greek and Roman culture sexually, uh, but trust me, it was as bad or worse than what we have today. And Paul was saying, ollie, ollie, income free, as long as your direction is heading towards Christ. So now let me quickly, as I said, I know I can't answer every question, but let me give you what I think here is maybe a sort of a non-comprehensive summary. And here I'm working with um, and relying uh, greatly upon Richard Hayes. You may or may not know who Richard is. He's, suffice it to say, a top New Testament scholar. His book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament, was named one of the 100 most important books of the 20th century. Um, Tom Wright and almost all my other theological friends would agree that um, what Richard does there is sort of the 
gold standard uh, statement on the topic. I mean, nobody's right about everything, but I think you know what I mean. So ready? Here's sort of a basic summary. First thing to say is the Bible rarely discusses homosexual behavior. But in both the Old and New Testaments, the texts are, quote, unambiguously and unremittingly negative in their judgment. I mean, you just can't get around that. Lots of people have tried. No one, even on the GBLT community now, everybody admits that the Bible's unambiguously negative about it. So then you're just left with where now is authority. So either the Bible has authority or it doesn't, but you can't make the Bible say something it's not saying. You can say, I don't believe the Bible, or you can say, I think the Bible's outdated. That's actually a fair thing to say, but you can't have it both ways. And so we have to decide, each of us, where now is authority. Is it in the cultural's the culture's experimentation with all sorts of things, from globalism to human sexuality to all sorts of things. Is, so is that where authority lies, or does authority lie somewhere else? Number two, the Bible describes our fallen human condition as being in a, quote, state of self-affirming confusion. Now, I know I've said a lot, but I just hope you get that one. That the Bible sees us as being in a state of self-affirming confusion as a result of our bondage to sin, and that as we come towards Christ, that's what gets left off. Next, Hayes would want to say that the refusal to honor God as creator ends in a blind distortion of creation. Everything that follows is simply a specific way of defying the creator and demonstrating our alienation from him. Number four, the Bible undercuts our cultural obsession with sexual fulfillment and reveals that sexuality is never the basis for defining one's identity. I do not want to be known as a leading heterosexual. I want to be known and have a life that says he is a follower of Jesus. That is my only identity. Everything else shakes out from that. The Bible's clear that marriage between a man and woman is the normative form of sexual fulfillment and that homosexuality is one of many signs that we're broken and alienated from God's loving purpose. Therefore, again, I would say that the church at least is coming to see that when one cannot live in that kind of a relationship, that abstinence is the norm and that sexual gratification is not a sacred right and celibacy is not a fate worse than death. Now I know all our music, all our commercials that sell things, all our TV and movies say the opposite that unless you're completely sexually active in whichever way you want to be, you're really not fully human or fully alive, I just want to say again, will you decide um, which worldview you think is right? And then I would just finally remind you to answer this question. Jesus was celibate. Do you think he was fully human and fully alive? Do you think he experienced the fullness of the goodness of humanity as a celibate man? Again, you decide. So the cross then models the way the church should respond to persons of homosexual inclination. Not condemnation, but as people are moving towards Jesus, we work with each other in sacrificial service. Having great compassion, especially for the biological, environmental factors at work in some people. If we cannot get to the place of at least having compassion for that, we'll have nothing to say. I mean, you must at least just go read the stories of sincere, go just get washed and waiting. 
And even just read the first 30 or 40 pages and hear the brokenness of heart in this young scholar who loves God with his whole heart, but cannot deny that since he was 12 or 13, he felt wired in a certain way. Now, thinking of this civilly, full civil rights for the GBLT and whatever the other new letters are, yeah, absolutely, of course. As a civil matter, no brainer for me. I mean, we live in a democratic, pluralistic world, and, and if the majority of Americans vote to do something, I, as a civil matter, I kind of feel like, in a sense, none of my business. Like, I want to take my business of trying to articulate with love and compassion the biblical worldview. The other worldview that exists in the world is right out there in our face all the time. Um, I just want to be a part of talking about this other worldview. Um, GBLT, GBLT people as members of the church? Yes, of course, in this centered set style. Yes, they're right there with us who are greedy. Yes, they're right there with us who are slanderers. Yes, they're right there with us. Just look at those lists and pick your sin. And just say, yes, all of us are walking towards Christ in that way. So gay marriage for the church? No. Gay marriage is a civil issue? Sure, fine. Um, great. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's, just not, it's like it's not my place. I don't, I don't have a soapbox high enough uh, to say no. I don't have that kind of authority. And I don't think we do either. Go back to what I said to you a minute ago. The New Testament, the words of the New Testament mean nothing to people who are not already living in self-denial and ultimate confidence in God. If somebody's not living that way, they're not going to hear our soapbox moralisms. We just want to say in the church, we do this thing called covenant marriage. GBLT people participating in the church? Yes, of course. Again, just think of Wesley Hill. He not only participates in the church, he's a leading thinker in the church. Yes, participating, but committed to abstinence, seeking their true identity in Christ like the rest of us on that list. All right, you can take another deep breath. I'm done. With, with this, that all of us have disordered and deep-rooted inclinations and desires. The question is, what shall we do with them? Like some of you are heterosexual sexually, but you have this deep-rooted fear of life, and it leads you to be maybe utterly controlling and, and hateful in your language to people. That's how you're wired. So all I'm saying is all of us start moving towards Christ with disordered issues, and the question is then, what do we do with them? And I love one of these great prayers in, the, uh, in our prayer book uh, that says, Almighty God, so see here the, the respect and confidence in that, Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command. And in a moment, we'll pray in confession that we might delight in his will like, think about that more than rhetoric. How and why would you delight in someone's will? Well, you would first find them to be competent. You would first find them to believe they know what they're talking about. And if you can't find that, you will not delight in their will. This is why it's so important that Jesus is for you the central human being in all of human history and that he knew what he was talking about. 
then we can delight in his will and walk in his ways. Now for our quiet uh, moment this morning, I want you to focus on the slide here. And if, if there has been a word in either Paul's list or Jesus's list that you think, whether it's sexual or attitudinal or whatever, that you think, yes, this is me. This is truly who I am as I try to move towards Christ. Hold that word in your mind and look at that slide and listen to this. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. And as you bring yourself to him, and whatever sexual, mental, moral way necessary, hear this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen.